Hi everyone, this is Kim C, your one-woman Viking warrior at the helm of this here Stephen King podcast called The Year of Underrated Stephen King. Today we interrupt our scheduled programming, exploring the 1990 novella collection Four Past Midnight to bring you a very special constant reader interview. My honored guest today is our first interview of 2023 and an absolute Stephen King whiz. I cannot emphasize that enough. My interview today is the person I want to be when it comes to being a lover of King. He is an absolute inspiration. This constant reader, like myself, got to the King party a little bit later in life and since then has made up for lost time by reading every single title in Stephen King's catalog, a majority of them more than once. He started a YouTube channel, a bookstagram, a podcast, as well as authored his very own Stephen King quiz book to make sure all constant readers out there know their stuff and stay sharp. It's Dave Musson, everyone! You know him and love him, and what a lucky host I am to get some time with this incredible member of the King community. Dave is the host of the YouTube channel Dave Reads King, as well as the brand new Constant Writers podcast discussing King and the fiction craft, Be Still My Beating Heart. So I was absolutely thrilled Dave was able to spend some time with me and chat King. Today we talk about Dave's personal history with King's work, as well as some of the deep King questions. You know the ones, the ones we're all afraid to ask, the forbidden ones, the dangerous ones, about what on earth was he thinking and what does it all mean? It was such a privilege chatting with Dave, and without further ado, please check out my rich and decadent conversation with Stephen King superfan, author, podcaster, YouTuber, Dave Musson. All right, ladies and gentlemen, so thrilled to introduce my next constant reader for today's episode, Mr. Dave Musson. Welcome to the year of underrated Stephen King, Dave. It's so great to have you. It's really great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So excited. I always get this burst of energy when <laughs> I get to begin a constant reader interview. But before we get into questions, would you be so kind as to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? and all the fun stuff you've been up to. Sure. My name's Dave. If you haven't realized from the accent, I'm from the UK, right bang in the middle of England, just down the road from the town where Black Sabbath came from and that invented heavy metal. So uh, a good place to be. And yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a Stephen King fan, as we'll get into. I've, I've been a reader of his for a while, but I guess people might know me more from the stuff I've done online. So I, sort of, I switched my Instagram account to being a bookstagram thing a few years ago and mainly share pictures of my King collection. And then during lockdown, a few things happened. So I started doing live Instagram quizzes that were specifically Stephen King quizzes. Um, that turned into something quite big, a quiz book, which I published last year. I also started a YouTube channel dedicated to King where my plan was to go through all of his books and give 19 reasons to read each one. And I've done that and I'm now onto the movies. And yeah, I've just, I've just started a podcast. I have a newsletter that's sort of focused on uh, indie horror authors. I do a little bit of fiction writing myself, but um, that, that covers everything. Oh, I'm in a band called Chapter 19, which is named after Stephen King, but I kind of forget to mention them because we literally haven't done anything for like two years because of the <laughs> pandemic and just life's getting in the way. But we have a, a song called Stephen and a music video that has more than 60 Stephen King references in it, which is a lot of fun. 
oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> it's such a a huge Stephen King deluge. I love it. It's so great. Yeah, I kind of I'm I've got one of those brains that like when I get into something, I always get a bit evangelical about it. <laughs> I I get a lot of energy from creative hobbies. So, you know, I wanted to start a YouTube channel for a while and then it was like, well, I'll do it about Stephen King because I need to be able to talk about something. And yeah, all the other stuff just, it just all keeps tying back to King somehow. I share the same sentiment, energy from creative hobbies. It's always nice to find one that gives you a little bit of life. Definitely, definitely. All right, let's dive in. My first question to you is, asking to take us way back or maybe not so way back how old were you when you read your first Stephen King title yeah it's it's not actually that far back um so I think I was 24 when I got my first Stephen King book it's it's a strange one because it, it King is one of those names that has constantly obviously been around because he's such a big author you can't escape him and he was one who both my parents frequently recommended to me and for whatever reason when I was a teen I never bothered tapping into that recommendation and, and picking up a King book and then so between about the ages of 15 and I don't know 22 I was I was more distracted by music and going to college and all of those kind of things I didn't really read that much but King being King like his books are very easy to find secondhand and yeah like it was 2010 and I was out shopping in secondhand books and thrift stores with my wife and just saw Cujo and thought why not I'll give it a go that that was the one book that my mum in particular had always recommended because I grew up I'm an only child but grew up with dogs so she was always a fan of that one and yeah I guess if, to, to roll out a cliche the rest as they say is history but I, I read Cujo and within a month of reading Cujo I'd probably acquired about 40 of his books just secondhand and I'd also done Cujo, Carry, The Dead Zone, and I think for Reviewer Kate. And then it was just like, that started a period of a few years where I was just reading King all the time. And I think by the time Joyline came out in 2013, I was sort of up to date. So that's when I had to start buying new copies. So yeah, not that long ago, but I feel like I made up for last time quite quickly. Wow. Yeah, you got bit by the voracious reading bug. I love it. I did. I'm thrilled to hear that you discovered him a little bit later because I've noticed a lot of constant readers, it was in those formative years, preteen, teen, and so they just have this long identity established with King. I was 26, so I feel very late to the party as well. So I'm glad to hear that there was an older age where you got bit. Yeah, and like those first few years when it was really ravenous for King, like I didn't have to wait for a new book to come out because I had piles almost as tall as me to work through so that was definitely a benefit of getting into them at that point I am somewhat envious when I speak to people who got into them in their teens and stuff and like people who remember getting the individual sections of the green mile for example and that sounds like a lot of fun to experience but at the same time I'm happy I got there got there when I did same same it's a party I was very very late to but I'm happy <laughs> happy I got there most certainly yeah all right my follow-up question to that, it sounds like you've read everything. Is this true? Or like, what is your, your number? Yeah, I, I mean, off the top of my head, I don't, I mean, the number would be like, how many has he put out? Because yeah, I mean, I, I've read, I've read everything. I've, I've read everything at least twice, apart from fairy tale. 
um, which I read once, but like, you know, I've, I've gone to the lengths of not only reading the plants, which was his, his unfinished serialized online novel, but like I got a copy printed because I didn't really like reading it off the screen because it was quite, it came out quite small. I've read like Charlie the Choo Choo. I've got My Mares in the Sky, which is a photo book that he did an essay for. And I try and keep on top of the short stories he's put out in the last few years as well that haven't gone into a collection yet. So like things like Red Screen and Finn from last year and Laurie from a couple of years before. So I, I don't think there's there's much that I haven't tried to track down and read. Super, super constant reader. You're you're at the top level, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, part, of, part of it was out of necessity with like with doing the quiz book and stuff. I wanted to make it as as thorough as possible, but also like I don't know I've got I've got a bit of a I guess I've got a bit of a collector's instinct. So when there's when there's something to hunt down and find, it's it's quite a fun challenge. Again, during lockdown especially, like I was dipping in reading like where I could find different versions of books and and you know things that might not have been collected. And yeah, it sort of kept me busy in those those long boring days. Absolutely, you are the the level of constant reader that I aspire to. You guys are the tippy top that I'm striving to to reach. You you'll get there. It was, you know, yeah, it's a lot of fun like hunting these things down, and just just exploring absolutely everything. Particularly when you've like read read all the main books once, it's just really interesting and exciting to go and go in these little rabbit holes and find these little things he did, or even just finding like standalone editions of stuff that you might have read elsewhere, like. I've got a really nice tiny little version of um, Omni's Last Case. It's like a 60s penguin book. It's about, you know, it's, it's, it sort of fits in the palm of my hand. And just, just discovering that little things like that exist and then hunting them down on, on the internet is um, it's a lot of fun. King collector and top tier constant reader. I'm just got to celebrate this street <laughs> cred, David. It's impressive. It's so impressive. So having been a person who is just made their way through all of King's stuff more than once, which is incredible. I started the podcast because I wanted to look at those titles in shadow, the ones that I absolutely fell in love with and nobody was really spending some time on these. Thankfully, we've got a lot of King podcasts out there, so I think the, a good chunk of them are getting some sunlight, which I'm thrilled about. But do you have any titles that you really, really love and were passionate about and then you would speak to the community and you found out that there was a lot of negativity around a certain title and vice versa? Is there one that you absolutely just shake your head and you find a lot of people celebrate it? It's an interesting question. I'll start on the stuff that I don't like that other people do because I think that's a more straightforward answer. Like, I'd have the talisman really low down my ranking. But I'm very aware that that is a big book, particularly for a certain generation of constant reader. That That is a big, much lauded, much loved book. But I have also met quite a few people who feel similar to me. But yeah, it's just one that never really struck with me either time I've read it. And I guess I also have a bit more of a hotter take, but I, I'm not that into the stand or Wizard and Glass. But I can totally see why people love them and I can totally see that they are exceptional pieces of work. I just, no, neither of them struck much with me. I, I found them both a little overrated. But when it comes to stuff I like that perhaps other people don't, it's, it's a difficult one in some ways because, particularly the last couple of years, because like 
all of my online identity pretty much is Stephen King. And I speak to a lot of other Stephen King nerds. Like, there's not many between us. It's difficult to find a book that I like that other people don't. But kind of, I guess, trying to think more broadly and particularly thinking about like comments on my YouTube channel and stuff. There's definitely a few. I mean, my all-time favorite King is The Dead Zone. And that seems to be one that most people either find it really boring or just have a sense of admiration for rather than a real love for it. It just kind of depends who you're talking to. And then I found that maybe I say the word boomer here, and I don't mean it in a, in a negative sense, but like that boomer generation of King fans are perhaps less interested in his work from the 2000s. So either dismiss or just haven't got around to checking out things like Lisey's Story and Duma Key and Joyland and Revival, all of which I think are incredible books and probably fit your description of, a, of underrated pretty well. And then, like for me, I think my, my overall favorite decade of King is his 90s output. And I think that's probably where I'm most unusual. Like, because obviously there's stuff like the Green Mile, which people do go crazy for. But, you know, I look at Gerald's game, Dolores Claiborne, Insomnia, Arts and Atlantis, Needful Things, and just think they're all absolutely amazing books. And like even Bag of Bones, which I know I shouldn't like as much as I do. I really like Bag of Bones as well. So, it's probably somewhere in those, like some of those newer ones, perhaps, if you're talking to perhaps an older reader, but maybe the, the 90s output is perhaps the one where I'm more unusual than other constant readers, I guess. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, I love that. That's super great. That is the, all of them you've mentioned, I haven't yet cracked. <laughs> I've done Hearts in Atlantis, which is incredibly beautiful. Oh. Bag of Bones, I absolutely loved until the end. It just was a little too gnarly for me. Lots okay. to appreciate, though. But yeah, 90s King is where I need to hurry it up and get there and spend some time. There's something great about 90s King in that, like, he doesn't need to prove anything at that point. Like, and he's he's clean as well. So you can see it. Post-needful things, you can see he's got this different mindset and you can see he's just, like, He's going to try stuff and he's willing to experiment and he's he's willing to sort of really follow whatever politics were going around his head or whatever passions were going around his head at that point. So taking like Gerald's game, Dolores Claiborne and Rose Manor, for example, you've got three stories there with women leads and sort of really looking at issues like domestic abuse and, and stuff like that. And, and clearly he was he was really invested in that outside of his writing. And because he wasn't trying to prove anything and because he was just doing what he was just sort of going where the wind took him. I think that's what I find really interesting is when you get a big artist like that who just sort of shackles her off. You know, because he at that point he could have just like sat back and just put out some generic horror stuff and let the cash come rolling in. But I think he his output in that decade is really, really artistically credible. And then it's interesting as well because the decade ends with him being hit by the minivan and like that literally turning his life upside down and you, you then get a whole chapter of books that are, where pain is the center theme almost so it's just it's just this really interesting decade between like he's established himself he's clean he's still dipping into horror now and then he's doing a bit more drama and stuff and it's before that big life-changing event so it's i don't know it's, a, it's an interesting time capsule of, of his career i think Oh my gosh, I'm just hanging on every word you're saying. This is, <laughs> it's so beautiful to 
have constant readers who have really made their way through everything and they have just such a broad look at decades of work and you're able to just encapsulate what this guy has done in chunks of time it's amazing it's just so amazing it's such a a wealthy place of knowledge to be so i'm so excited you to share this with us thank you so much (laughs) officially nerding out it's happening okay my next question is in regards to who you feel deserves either a singular character or a team either a prequel or a sequel, very much like Danny received with Dr. Sleep. Who do you feel would be most deserving of more story? I love this question. I think it's I think it's great. And it, it's, it's extra difficult to answer because King has kind of already hit the ball out of the park with Dr. Sleep and Dan Torrance. Like, such a good choice. And then the amount of distance he gave between young Danny and adult Dan, you know, it was just, I thought he, delivered on that beautifully and obviously we've got holly coming up i mean that would not be my answer um, <laughs> which is i mean i'm still i still pre-ordered the book and i'm so keen to see what it does but that you know if i could have picked anyone that it wouldn't have been holly but she's already been in more books than i would have picked her in any way but i'm um, gonna get distracted on the yeah. holly give me hate tangent there so such a hot take i love it it's great <laughs> i mean trying to answer your question i think the obvious one that always comes to mind would be like the story of grown up Ellie Creed from Pet Cemetery. Like, if that got announced, you know, you wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to spend my cash fast enough to pre order that. <laughs> that I, I would, I mean, I mean, to see all of that trauma, how and when that would come out at whatever point in her life, that would be incredible. And I think King could really do something amazing with that. And then there's, you know, there's other ones I think about, but part of me, I think probably because of the nostalgia of Cujo being my first book, part of me is like, hmm, I wonder what would happen if we picked up with Donna and Vic Trenton, with the parents from Cujo, like, that could be interesting, but then pretty soon that would be really bleak. And actually the end of that book kind of tells you everything you need to know without using words explicitly. I think, so I think that would almost devalue the ending of Cujo. So Thinking more broadly, like into side characters, I came up with two that I, I would love more stories from. Not necessarily like a full novel, perhaps, but like just just more time with them. So I'd I'd love Wireman from Doobie Key. Like Wireman is just a wholly good human, but with a, a troubled past. And like I'd take his prequel, I'd take a sequel, anything for him. And then the other one would be a character who who does crop up in a couple of books in a row so it's Cynthia Smith who we first meet in Rose Matter and then she also makes appearance in Desperation and by extension The Regulators as well and I like her as a character and I do often wonder if King perhaps thought he was going to have more to do with her and that's why he brought her into Desperation and Regulators but then he just kind of didn't know what to do with her and, and left her in those but if she does, for anyone who hasn't read those books, she's like this sort of spiky punk character who's got like half and half green and orange hair, really resourceful, really tough, really resilient, and just a really cool character. So I'd gladly take her back as well. Oh my goodness. Amazing choices. A thousand percent with you with Wireman. Oh my God. Yeah, that's my choice as well. I'm obsessed well, with Wireman. I do remember Cynthia from Rose Matter, and I really liked her character. So I'm excited to read more about her and Regulators and Desperation. But fascinating, yeah. The fact that she appeared in 
all of those. It's only now we're in the Holly era that it's made me look at that and go, what was he planning there? Because, yeah, just out of all the characters in Rose Manor to bring back into the next one, she was pretty small. Like, I liked her, but she was, she was quite a... She obviously captured his imagination in some way, but yeah, then whatever happened, then we didn't see from her. We didn't see or hear from her again. It was a shame. Super interesting. I love that because I really enjoy spending some time breaking down the archetypes within Stephen King females. It's like a little mm. side project I have going because I think we got some destroyer goddesses. We have a lot of victims and victors. And villains, triple V there, <laughs> unintended alliteration. But, so someone like Cynthia is pretty fascinating. So you've given me a new person to kind of put in my scope. Okay. All right. In the same vein as a singular character, I want to open this one because it's terrific fun. Do you have a favorite Stephen King villain or villains? You know more than one. Paul. Yeah. Yeah, is the short answer. I mean... The, he's sort of spoke for choice, aren't you? I mean, in the obvious ones would be Pennywise and Annie Wilkes because they're both so terrifying and so just brilliantly drawn. But you know, there's, there's a few more that have really helped me in over the years. I think you look at, particularly when King starts putting real people in inverted commas as, as the villains, I think he does some really interesting stuff there. So like Big Jim Rennie in Under the Dome and Greg Stilson in The Dead Zone. I find them chilling like and incredibly effective because they're so real. Like there are people out there who are convincing enough to get enough people to vote for them to give them power, despite being horrible and highly dangerous. You know, like that's not a fictional thing, but but then where King takes them with those two characters, it sort of shows you it sort of like is outlining the danger of like, you know, think about who you vote for and that that kind of thing. And then on the flip side, we've got Norman Daniels in Rose Madder, who is supposedly a normal person, but he's just insane as a villain, like to the point where he's almost cartoonish at times. But, and I think those bits where he potentially loses me a little, but his relentless nature of him, like that sort of Terminator style of like, I'm going to hunt my wife down. Again, really, really scary. And then I guess one more, like Rose the Hat, like, I don't really care for the true not much in Doctor Sleep, but Rose the Hat just, I mean, she just sort of helps. Like, she's like super hot and super deadly at the same time. It's like this lethal combination that I just can't take my eyes away from. So good. Yeah, Rose is cool. Any kind of vampire anything, sign me up. Okay. We have immortal feeders, check. Yep. Yeah. And a cool hat as well. All right. Very stylish and uh, accessorizes wonderfully. I love that you said, I like Rose, but not the true knot, because that's how I feel. That's really how I feel as well. Yeah. I think the true knot in the movie were a bit more likable because it, it wasn't sort of leaning into the, um, I want to say that word again, but leaning into the boomer tropes so much and like making them obsessed with technology and maps and stuff. I think I think sort of shrinking the sort of size of their clan and just, just making them more about being these these weird energy vampires was a good choice from my family. Agree. Oh, love him. All right. We are going to jump back to looking at the novels as a whole or short stories. I know that lots of folks over the years have bones to pick about Stephen King endings. A lot of constant readers who I've chatted with 
said, who cares about them? It's all about the journey. Who cares? Doesn't matter. And then other people do have one or two where the ending was so unsatisfying, it kind of taints the whole story. Do you have any Stephen King endings that ruined the journey? Or what is your perspective on the endings? I think he's pretty good at endings, actually. I generally find his endings serve the story pretty well. I can totally see why certain endings annoy people. Like, you know, if I think to Colorado Kid or from a Buick Cave, totally understand why people would be unsatisfied with that, even though, from my point of view, I think they're excellent. I love, love both of them. I love the ambiguity of them. You look at, and with no spoilers here, but you look at the Dark Tower ending, the overall Dark Tower series, I can see why that would have pissed people off. But for me, I thought it was perfect. You could make an argument that the stand is a bit too on the nose. For me, like, as I said, and I'm not much a fan of the stand, so I was just kind of like ready for it to be done at that point. But in terms of ones that have ruined the story, I, I, I've never experienced that. I guess the closest might be Cell, but even that's a stretch because Cell is down the bottom of my ranking. So again, it's not like one that I was you know, loving 90% of, and then the ending just pulled the rug out. I guess the last, the very, very end of later was weird and, and unnecessary and left a bit of a bad taste, but it also felt so separate from the story that I can always dismiss it. I don't know. I guess people, I guess a few people don't like the Tommyknockers and Under the Dome, but again, I think for the context of the story that they are trying to serve, I think they work as an ending. Again, I can see why people wouldn't like them so much, but like, like under the dome, it, by that point you've gone through a thousand pages of like pedal to the metal, like full on, just everything, just everything going off all of the time. Any ending for that book was going to be unsatisfying in some way because you've got to stop at some point, right? And yeah, I, I think it works. And, and the Tommyknockers, I think, the Tommyknockers is an interesting one. I think it starts pretty strong for me, and then it takes a massive dip in the middle. But by the ending, it's on the up again. So, yeah, so I guess the short answer is no, but I, I can I can understand why the ones that people wail out more frequently. I can I can see why people feel about the way they do. But for me, I think he's he's very good at serving his stories very well. Oh, you mentioned so many good ones, so many good ones that I do wish different choices were made, but I am one who looks at it from such an analytical perspective that I'm always trying to understand why rather than complaining too much. Okay. However, with Under the Dome, I after a thousand or so pages, I kind of wish that it would have been a tragic ending, just me. Uh, yeah, I kind of wish that it would have ended tragically i think it would have yeah. really brought it home i and that, i think that's a, that's a good shout actually because so much of that book has that sort of early king vibe that sort of 70s 80s king vibe when he was nastier you know like again not, not wanting to do too many spoilers but like the my first book cujo that's a that's a nasty ending that's a bleak ending so yeah i, I, I i'm inclined to agree with you i think if it had if, yeah, if he could have just leaned into, tapped into that sort of late 70s, early 80s spirit just for those final few pages, that, that could have been really interesting. But that probably would have pissed off a load of other people as well. So, you, I mean, you're just never going to win, are you? In the Stephen King community, fans of the films and fans of the books, we recently all been celebrating because 
there has been news that Mike Flanagan is going to handle the Dark Tower. What's so? Reasons to celebrate and dance in the streets, I think. Yeah. With that in mind, I just like this question to be placed at the feet of constant readers. What are your thoughts about the Dark Tower? So first off, from Mike Flanagan, I think that what a great choice. And yes. Well, I, I mean, if it, if it indeed it was a choice, from what I read, it was almost like, hey, Amazon, you can have me, but you're letting me do the tower. But either way, if he gets to do it, then then, then all is right in the world. And I think he'll, I trust him to do a, a fantastic job with it. I mean, since my experience of the tower, it was when I did my first read of King, those books were the ones that sat on my shelf until I'd read everything else. Because I was just, I was almost daunted by it. It was like, you know, I'm not a massive fantasy head anyway, but thinking like, whoa, this is, this is the set of books that King himself sees as his, like, his magnum opus. Like, I, I always feel like I need to save that to the end just to, just to do them justice. And, you know, having gone through them twice now, like, again, I, I, I try to look at it with a degree of separation. Like, it's, it's not my favorite stuff of his, like, far from it, but when you look at the scope of it, and the scale of it it's just astonishing and it's it's bound together by a really good story as well which is the most important thing when you, when it all comes down to it but you know, when you start to scratch away and you see how much he's been able to weave the tower into his wider works what an amazing achievement it's like he was doing cinematic universes way before they were even a thing way, way before they were they were what everyone expected and you know i think particularly for someone who wants to reread King's work, then I think going through those core Dark Tower books is really important because you, you then start seeing all these connections the next time around and it, it really does enrich those rereads. So yeah, it's so like the tower itself, like it's fine. It's this sort of smack bang in the middle of, of my King rankings, but to look at it and just to sort of admire what it is he was able to produce for that, I'm blown away at what he did. And on a very, very basic level on the tower, I love Oi so much. Like, he is the best thing about the tower for me. And I should have said now in my question earlier about who do I want more stories. Just just give me 10 books about Oi. I'll take it right <laughs> up. I love him so much as well. He's just so precious. Oh, we have such similar journeys. We really do. Very similar stories. Oh, man. When I started my Stephen King journey, I knew about the tower and I just pushed it to the very, very back. I was so incredibly intimidated. So intimidated. Uh -huh. I know there's a lot of reverence around the tower and I respect it greatly, but I was so scared to screw it up. I was so scared I wasn't going to. And then, of course, as you know, the gunslinger is very polarizing. It's like, uh -huh. oh, my goodness, what is this? I just finished Wizard and Glass for the first time. So I'm really enjoying the journey thus far. And I think I've decided to deviate from canon and go spend some time with Wind Through the Keyhole. So we're going to experiment with that. So in a couple weeks, that's where, that's where I'm going to be. But thus far, I am enjoying it a lot. And I, I will have to wait till I'm completely done to kind of have that. How do I really feel about it? But it's funny. I, I know the exact moment in reading the tower where I went from where, where I was probably hooked on it as a, as a series. Cause like you say, the gunslinger is such a polarizing book. And I think, I don't know whether you found the same because I built it and built it as this thing. And then I eventually got to the gunslinger and was like, Oh, I don't, I don't really, don't really get what the fuss is about. But <laughs> by that point, like the only other King I had left to read was the rest of the tower. So I put the gunslinger down, picked up Trino the three 
It's like, okay, this is fine. And then there's like, I think it's chapter three, maybe whatever chapter it is when we meet um, Susanna for the first time. And like, he just drops in at the end of the chapter that she doesn't have her legs. I was just like, what? <laughs> so skipping back, like what? He can't, like he kind of just dropped that in. There. No, he has. Okay, and from that point, I was in, and I was like, okay, I want to see what happens here. And then I just blitzed through the rest of them, and I eventually loaned all of the Tower books to my mum, and I said to her, "You'll get to the end of book one, and you'll think, no, this isn't for me." I just, I just said, just make sure you read until at least like a third of the way through book two. If you're not hooked to that point feel free to put them down and give them back to me. But I reckon you will be into it by that point. And she said exactly the same. As soon as she found out that that character didn't have any legs, bang, she was interested and went from there. Oh, that's such a healthy recommendation. Keep going until you get to at least midpoint of drawing of the three. That's smart. (laughs) In that same vein, do you talk with a lot of non-King readers? And if so... What do you usually recommend or what do you tease out to maybe pull people into our Booyah Moon pool where they can <laughs> get stuck forever? Yeah, I do, I do talk to non-King readers. A lot of them will usually be aware of like one or two titles or or they'll just have this idea in their head that it's like, he's the scary stories guy. I don't want to read scary stories. So sometimes I'll throw in like, oh, you know, he wrote The Green Mile, or you know, he wrote Shawshank Redemption, right? And or Stand By Me, and it's like, oh, no, I didn't know that. And so, oh yeah, you can you can check those stories out here; they're really good. But the one that I would comfortably recommend to any person who likes reading fiction is Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three. Like, it's just got it all. I mean, just think about it off the top of your head: like time travel, action, drama, thriller historical fiction some horror in there some brutality but also like one of the best romances he has ever written and just just an amazing story it's like this chunky doorstop a book that you just you just absolutely fly through i remember reading one of the dan brown books when he was the name that everybody was going about and you know you whiz through those books because that's that's what they're designed to do he's just sort of written them like a, an outline for a, a film almost led in 2263 has you flying through at that at that pace but like actually with good writing and a good story. (laughs) So yeah, the one I would recommend to anyone. And you know, somebody said to me like, I want to get into Stephen King and I want to read some of this scary stuff. They'd be like, okay, do Night Shift first and then maybe look at Salem's Law or something. But if it's just somebody who perhaps needs some myths busting that King is all about horror, 11.22.63, and that, that will have them hooked, I'm sure of it. Oh, perfection. A hundred percent. It's it's a winner. Like you said, it just oh. ticks every box perfectly. Yeah. For him to have written that book, what, 40 years into his career as well. I mean, I know it was, a, it was an idea he had back from the early 70s and he just didn't have the resources to, to actually write it. But for him to pull that out of the back in 2011, having published his first book in 1974, it's just unreal. It really is. Agree. Could not agree more. So now that you brought up one of my favorite Stephen King couples, which is Jake and Sadie, that mm-hmm. is my next question. Do you have a favorite duo or favorite Stephen King couple who you just feel, yeah, they're pretty tip top? Yeah, I mean, um, Jake and Sadie would be pretty much top of my list. I think Jake and Sadie and Johnny and Sarah, I see those as kind of twin couples. So Johnny and Sarah from the Dead Zone, for people who, um, who might not have read that one yet. They are King's 
two best romance stories and those two couples i just love reading them and, and you know they fill my heart up and then completely smash it at different points of the books and then i think there's some other honorable mentions out there as well i mean i think alan pangborn and, and polly chalmers in needful things are great i think jake and oi taking it from a slightly different direction in the dark tower you can't mess with that duo yeah charlie and andy and firestarter obviously they're father and daughter rather than lovers but i think they're really really well drawn as a as a parent child on the run duo and king's really good at writing friends as well so like yes. you know the kid the kids in the body obviously the losers club in it and the four friends in dreamcatcher like when you can sort of wade past the shit weasels and the aliens and all the weirdness going on in dreamcatcher <laughs> the four friends at the heart of that that story is amazing and like you know this i often wonder thinking about Dreamcatch, like if he hadn't been like off his face on pain meds like where that might have gone he'd sort of you know had a bit of a clearer head and sort of knuckled in on the friendship rather than the um the weirdness but, but yeah i mean I, the short answers i'm with you jake and sadie but but johnny and sarah sort of right on the podium with them as well oh my gosh before i forget two things number one johnny and sarah at least in my king journey thus far they have the most romantic date falling in love that I've ever read in King thus mm -hmm. far. Like that is forever one of my favorite chapters at the carnival. I'm like, this is magic. This is pure romantic magic. This is so real. This is so genuine. So I always go back to Johnny and Sarah's date. It just breaks me. It's so perfect. And then I am a crazy fan of Duma Key. And Edgar and Wireman, their bromance just gives yes. me life. Oh, my God. So I'm so glad you mentioned the friendships because they're just fantastic. Yeah, like where Edgar's getting like one step closer every single day and he starts, starts leaving the um, the iced tea out for him. But yeah, you just, yeah, you just know from those walks that they're going to be really good buddies in his son. Yeah, and then, yeah, Johnny and Sarah, you're totally right. And as far as I can remember, that's one of like the earliest explicit references to a 19 as well i think because johnny bets it all on 19 on the wheel of fortune and i can't think of many because that's so early in his career i can't think of many before that where the, the 19 is so prominent another reason why it's the best one jumping around a little bit i do want to talk about films because you did mention that you're heading that way with your youtube channel which is extraordinary do you have any favorite or favorites for Stephen King television or film adaptations? Yeah, I, I definitely do. Like my favorite comfortably is Stand By Me. I think it's it's a great adaptation of the story, but more than that, it's just it just feels like a perfect movie. It's it's something I could watch multiple times a year and never get bored of. I think everything about it I love. So Stand By Me is absolutely my favorite, but I mean, there are a lot of bad Stephen King adaptations, but there are a lot of really good ones as well. So, you know, if I, if I was thinking honorable mentions, I, I mean, I won't spend long. I did jot down my honorable mentions, so I'll just list the ones that I also love. So I've got Storm of the Century, the original Carrie, The Dead Zone, um, Lisey's Story, the original Pet Cemetery, 1408, The Mist, Dolores Claiborne, Gerald's Game, 1122, Misery, All of the It's, and Shawshank and Green Mile as well. They're not bad. As a wild card choice, and I'm conscious this is a bad movie, but it's a really, really good bad movie, is Sleepwalkers. I have so much fun watching Sleepwalkers. It's, <laughs> it's just the most ridiculous 
like stupid film that should not work and yet is great excellent list oh those are tremendous and my heart just burst a little bit because you mentioned one of my all-time favorites storm of the century that is my favorite beyond favorite Stephen King miniseries I just I've seen it so many times I watch it multiple times a year I am blown away so thank you for liking it yeah it's so good and I mean I I didn't it's it's what I discovered since getting into King and because it it didn't really get an airing over here in the UK so it's it's not one again not one that I had growing up and a friend of mine, this is a slight tangent, but I'll go with it. So a friend of mine, she is from the same part of the world as I am, but she, her husband is from Florida and they lived in Florida for a few years and she's into Stephen King. So she had quite a lot of exposure to Storm of the Century while she was over there. And we were chatting once and she was like, what's that, what's that King adaptation where there's the evil guy in the prison in the police station? And I was just completely flummoxed about it. I have no idea what you're talking I'm racking my brains and I'm like, I mean, there's, there's bits in the first season of Castle Rock, but you're talking about stuff from like the turn of the century. There's the Green Mile and Shawshank, but it's not those. And then I watched it a few weeks later and realized what she was talking about. And yeah, it's so good. And it holds up so well. I mean, for something that was made for TV in 1999, it still completely hooks me in. But I did it. Have you read, have you got the, the book version of it? So like the screenplay of it? Yes, sir such a good read such a fascinating read. like the first few pages i was like i i don't know how i'm going to cope with this because because he doesn't just king doesn't just put stage direction in there he's like he's like putting a commentary about all of the characters and stuff but after a few pages it just you just sink into it it just it feels like a an experimental novel almost and um yeah I, that was that was such a good experience reading it having watched it as well but yeah it's such a good series seriously overlooked Truly, truly. I just, I want to talk about it really at every opportunity that I can. And I have another pair of Brits who have a podcast, The King Size Gentleman. And so I'm like, mm-hmm. Storm of the Century, that's your next episode. That's what, that's what it's got to be, guys. I need more people to talk about it because it fills me with joy. I, oh man, I think my episode on it was like three hours almost. <laughs> it was just, I could not stop. I watched it three times. I had pages and pages and pages of notes it is just beyond genius yeah yeah so glad you love it and what a stellar list for sure we have some beautiful king adaptations out there for real we do did you enjoy eleven twenty two sixty three with franco i i did it's kind of it's almost a shame that the franco's become a bit of a you know a bit of a dirty word since then because <laughs> yeah it just taint it somewhat but but uh, yeah, it's it's so good. It captures pretty much everything I love about the book. It captures it really well, and I, I think the choices it makes where it, where it does deviate from the text, I think, are really smart choices for the purposes of the TV series as well. Like, there's a couple of characters merged from memory, and like a couple of tweaks to to what happens. But yeah, I think it's I think the look of it is brilliant, and yeah, I think I think it works really well. That's that's one of the few King things that I've watched with my wife and. You know, she's not a King reader, but she enjoyed that series. So I think that that always says a lot when you can get a non-King fan to enjoy something. Absolutely. I make my boyfriend watch everything with me, and he really loved that. Like, couldn't wait to watch the next episode. Could not <laughs> wait. Lisey's story was a little bit more of a challenge. I had to prep him for each episode. 
because I was like, this is a bonkers novel, okay? So this is going to be crazy. But yeah, I was in the same boat. My significant other really enjoyed it. I mean, Nishi's story is just, it's just an art project, isn't it? But I, I mean, I just, I just got completely lost in the visuals of that. And, and Julianne Moore, well, yeah, Julianne Moore and Jennifer Jason Lee, both amazing in that, I think. So yeah, I, I was always in on that from the start, really. Same. Such a fan of the book. Took a minute, took a couple reads for me to really love mm-hmm. it. And then I fell in love with how crazy it is. And I felt we got a, a show for the readers of the novel. Like, it's absolutely for those who read the story. Clive Owen, interesting fact, is his place of birth, his town where he grew up, is like 10 minute drive down the road from where I live. <gasps> oh my gosh, I love it. I used to have a huge crush on him as a teenager, even though he was significantly older than me, but that's another story. <laughs> Speaking of crushes, we're going to go down that same vein, not necessarily crushes, but back to singular characters. Do you have a favorite Stephen King female? Yeah, again, I ended up making a bit of a list of this book because I think a really interesting question. And I, I think it's an interesting question because for me, I think you're, you're spoiled for choice across across his entire bibliography, but particularly if you don't just look at it in terms of like, um. I'm just going to pick the the heroines, but looking at all of the the characters he's he's, he's written who are women. You get book one, Carrie. You've got Carrie. You've got Sue Snell. You've got Margaret White. You've got Chris Harginson. Who, you know, all of those characters are excellent women characters, and all for different reasons. And you know, then you can just start walking through his bibliography, and they keep coming. So you know, you've got Wendy Torrance in The Shining, and in the book, she's a wonderful, strong character. You've got Donna Trenton in Cujo, Rachel Creed in Pet Cemetery, both incredibly well-drawn mothers who go through an awful lot of horrendous stuff. And then you've got, you know, Beverly Marsh in It and Charlie McGee in Firestarter. Like, great. King's brilliant at writing children, but you wouldn't necessarily expect him to be so good at writing young girls. Well, I suppose he does have a daughter, so that probably helps. And then there's like, you know, obviously Annie Wilkes in Misery. She's terrifying, but she's an amazing character. I've already mentioned Susanna in the Dark Tower. I think she's great. Even Gwendy, like taking it right up to pretty much present day, like Gwendy Peterson in her trilogy. Really enjoyed time spent with her. But if you push me to pick some favorites, I think bringing it back to what I was saying earlier about the 90s, I'm always drawn to to Rose from Rose Madder and Jesse from Gerald's Game and Dolores Claiborne. And I would also throw in Lisey from Lisey's story as well. I think those women, all women who are working through trauma and taking back control and getting to a point where they can move on, but not necessarily in a way that's like a clean break or like this beautiful hallmark moment. They all have very real and empowering journeys, at least to this white man reading them. But it always feels like they always end up in a better place, even if it's not necessarily like a, star the shining everything's happy place and i think those four women in particular they're all brilliant and for me they they captivated me entirely in in the books that they were in that's such a beautiful list and i love that there is a focus on the victims who king allows to heal but also get a little bit of revenge which i love quite a bit like there's always a little bit of vengeance a large heap that they get to engage in oh yeah Going back to that trifecta of the three novels of Rose, Gerald's Game, and Delore, it's such a fascinating set 
of novels back to back to back with these similar themes in all of them. It's it's mm. amazing to to pick apart. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you you can when you've gone through everything, and you, particularly when you go back again. And I I did my rereading chronological order as well, so you really do pick up on like, ah, oh, he's he's clearly interested in this topic here, and this is his this is whatever phase. So yeah, like I was saying earlier, like when when you get into that sort of early part of the nineties, he was clearly interested in telling stories about women who have been through trauma. So yeah, and again, it's difficult for me to judge it particularly well being a white man, but I think he does it pretty well. I think what's challenging for me is King's writing is so powerful and it's so, it just moves me so much that sometimes it's like too much. Like sometimes mm -hmm. he takes me to the dark heart and I can't handle it. And so it, it's fascinating. Like I end up going there, but I'm often scarred for like many months or weeks after. Yeah. I love the community that, exists to decompress from all of like as a female i think that when he writes about these very dark subjects and the victimization for whatever reason i just have a really tender heart toward that stuff and so i get pulled to the very edge but i will go because it's a fascinating place to be with what he's exploring i mean let's not forget as well on the flip side he also regularly like spend sentences and paragraphs talking about women's breasts and things and like that that is their most important defining feature like yeah. even in fairy tale the first character um charlie meets when he gets to Empis is a sort of female identifying character and the first thing he remarks about is that she's got massive knockers it's just like <laughs> come on dude I, th I thought you'd got past this but but when he gets it right i think he does do it very effectively you just reminded me of something. This is totally a rogue question, but I think I'm really excited to hear your thoughts. A lot of constant readers, we examine his openly cruel treatment of anybody who's overweight or obese in the novels. Wow. He really goes out of his way to be especially cruel. And so there were, I don't know, I think it was Skeleton Crew where we have multiple stories back to back to back have a lot of that within it. Like it's just... A significant amount of vitriol toward overweight people. So my question is, rather than sort of throwing stones at, oh, Steve, shame on you, my hypothesis is that there must be someone or must have been someone in his life who he hated so much. And so every overweight person in these stories is that person. Because I don't know. What are your thoughts? Because I'm like, you are, you hate someone, Steve. You hate them so much. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting hypothesis. Like, I'd always assumed that, I mean, I, I, th I think King has struggled with weight at different points in his life. Like, thinner is, I think, is a bit of a reaction to, to that. So I guess I'd always assumed that maybe he'd built it up as a, almost a complex in his own head. And he was sort of projecting that onto like, like you're saying, like, I've got someone awful here. What can make them that extra bit awful and hideous or make them overweight as well? But I, I, yeah, I like that as an idea of like, I'm, I'm just shoving somebody I hate from, from my life from somewhere else in my life and, and still projecting like th this, there is still a sense that for whatever reason, at some point he sees being overweight as being a very bad 
thing with capital letters, a very negative thing, because like you see, there's so much vitriol towards this. Like, yeah, I mean, like, it's not that big, you know, any person realizes like, it's not that big a deal. Like, why, why are you making it? But, you know, you get these these lengthy descriptions of how much they jiggle when they lash and, like, how horrible their eating habits are and how disgusting they are making it. It's like, got a bit far there, really. I mean, like, you know, I'll, I'll take the clown coming and ripping kids' arms off, but, like, <laughs> gone too far there. So, yeah, I think I, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I, I, I bet there's no interview interviewer out there brave enough to say, like, hey, Steve, why is it with the fat people? <laughs> right? Were you fat or do you just hate fat people? And like, what is it? So I guess we'll never really know, which makes it even more fascinating and leaves more room for, for coming up with our own theories, I guess. Thank you so much. You scratched an itch really well <laughs> with that one. Because, yeah, I the hatred is so intense that you're like, my God, yeah. what either what you said, he's just so hyper aware of his own self and either had a complex growing up or just hates himself and it's all self 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 or is it someone is it someone who just deserves all of that rage and cruelty and so i'm like it's gotta be somebody who is it steve he was clearly bullied by some like 50s greasers at some point because there's, there's a bunch of his bullies who are 50s greasers but yeah, i'd never considered maybe, maybe he was also bullied by somebody who was a bit larger and just every time he adds a few more pounds to this guy. So then you get these these hideous monstrosities that he goes all in on them, already being nasty about. Who knows? Okay, my last thought on this, just because I'm so fascinated and you're such a wealth of knowledge, so I'm just milking it. With the character of Ben Hanscom in It, I think that's like, correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't read everything from King, but is he one of the only characters that's overweight that gets a little bit of grace? Is there anybody else out there who he isn't so terrible with? But at the same time, Ben is a a pudgy preteen, and then he transforms. King's like, oh, he got through that, and now he's svelte and in shape. And it's as if he really isn't truly uh, an overweight character for long. But I'm wondering, like, does anybody get any grace out there, or is it just the same throughout? The only one I can think of, and it's very similar to Ben, would be would be Gwendy in Gwendy's Button Box. You know, so she starts that with them calling don't they call her Goodyear or something? Because she looks like a blimp, apparently. Oh god. She's <laughs> and she's she's doing daily in her summer vacation, she's doing daily runs up this huge cliff in Castle Rock to try and shed the pounds. And then she gets the button box and it all happens. But again, it's a very it's very similar to Ben in that you know, as soon as she starts dropping the weight, everything else falls into place. And oh, yeah. You know, people people start noticing that she starts just nailing everything at school. She gets gets a boyfriend and all that stuff. So, but off the top of my head, I, I yeah, I can't think of any others. Generally, as you were saying earlier, generally, you know, if you're in a king book and you're overweight, you're in for a bit of a kicking from the narrator. Absolutely. You just sorry. It's hard knock life for you <laughs> yeah exactly it's so fascinating because like your overweightness makes you terrible you are huh. terrible and bad because yeah it's just one of these things that i guess was in the culture for such a long time and yeah 
but yeah, super fascinating. We'll have to chat more on that. It's it's just Definitely. it's like a huge constant reader thing where we're like, what what is go what is going on? Definitely. I will get us back on track and let's talk about your beyond stunning book collection. I'm not sure if you already have a King book signed, but if you don't yet and the magical opportunity arose to get one King title signed, what would it be? Yeah. I don't have anything signed by him and I, I struggle to think like I don't think I'm ever going to get the chance to get one done in person because he doesn't fly anymore so like the last time he was over in the UK was to do promo stuff for Leashy's story in, in 2006 so I don't think it's going to happen but if, if I could it would be it would be all of my copies of the dead zone I mean I'm, I'm such a dreamer at heart that so like last October here in the UK so every year we have a, a literature festival in the town of Cheltenham, which is just under an hour's drive from me. And last year, King was the recipient of like the big prize at this um, literature festival for services to literature and stuff. And um, he was going to be, he was going to do a session and, and speak. And it was very clear on all of the marketing that he's joining remotely and all of that stuff. It's like, oh, fine, I'm still gonna I'm still gonna be there. So I paid my ticket to be in a room to watch him join on screen. And I mean this is the dreamer in me. In my bag, I had my bottle of water, I had a snack, and I had a copy of the dead zone. Just oh. in case. Just in case he, he was pulling a big bluff and he took the, and I also I also took with me a copy of twentieth century ghosts by his son Joe Hill, because his son does live in London for most of the year. So I said, like, Well, it's not totally unreasonable to think that Joe Hill might turn up. So I had, I ended up just carrying these two books around with me for a whole evening, completely like pointless, but you know, I, I'd have kicked myself so much if he had turned up and I didn't have anything to sign, but yeah, yeah the dead's all the way. And you know, it might be fun to have him sign one of my quiz books as well. But, uh, but yeah. Oh, I love that story. That's beautiful. I'm so glad you brought your book because it's great. I did something similar. I wrote to him and sent him my copy of Full Dark No Stars, even though it's strictly forbidden. Like, he does not sign books through the mail. I knew this, obviously. Did I do it anyway? Yes, I did. And <laughs> the book was swiftly mailed back to me, undamaged. It was totally fine. I felt like a huge idiot, but I was very glad that at least my letter went, <laughs> my letter went somewhere. Yeah, it's it's totally fine to be a dreamer and have hope. I I did it too, so I love that story. Good. Hopefully someday we'll we'll get the chance. But I'm actually I think we're all okay if we never get one signed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, they are out there. Yeah. It's just I don't know. There's, there's part of me that's like again going back to that collector mentality. I used to get autographs of my favorite um, soccer players and stuff when I was growing up, and like part of the joy is that's the handing that person your pen and a piece of paper and they, they scribble something for you. So, I don't know, it, it would slightly lessen it for me, lessen the joy of it, just buying one off eBay, for example, versus if I could actually get watch it and like, do it right there in front of me. But I'm very realistic. I don't think that's ever going to happen. Not for me, anyway. Me too. Me too. I've, I've let the ship sail. But one author who absolutely made my entire life if you ever do get the chance you most likely have neil gaiman neil uh -huh. gaiman is an absolute diamond on this earth and if you ever get to go to one of his signings he is pure magic we don't deserve him <laughs> but yeah just a side tangent there that was one of the best author signings i've ever been to in my life was oh, cool. mr gaiman 
made me feel quite special. Moving on to a fun one, if you could be stuck. So I know it wouldn't be a good stuck. Maybe it could be a good stuck. But if you were to get stuck in a Stephen King setting, which one would you choose? Well, I can say it would definitely not be Derry because that <laughs> yeah. seems like one god-awful place to be, especially as an outsider. And like with this accent and like these black fingernails on a, <laughs> on a person who, who is supposed to be a man, like I, that would not go down well. I've always thought Castle Rock seemed okay. Like I did a, I did a guide to Castle Rock recently on my YouTube and like, you know, you know it, it seems okay. It felt like somewhere you could settle down. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, I'd, I'd be more than happy to go and live on Little Tall Island as well. You know, Dolores Claiborne got me interested in that place, but still in the century, really helped me in. So, you know, and I'd be going now after Linoges has gone and done his business. So I'd, I'd feel okay about it. So, yeah, I'd, I'd happily I'd happily go and spend some time in either Castle Rock or Little Tall Island. And then if I'm doing the tour, then, you know, maybe pop up for a, a mini break up into the the unincorporated township of TR90 from Bang of Bones because it seems quite nice, and have to throw in a trip to Joyland as well. Yay! To, uh, to go and ride the rides and solve some matters. I recently just finished Secret Window, Secret Garden with Brilliant. Tashmore Lake, and so I'm like, oh, these lake houses. I wouldn't mind hanging out here for a spell. Yep. But I'm so glad you mentioned Joyland. That's one of my top fives. I'm obsessed. Yeah, it's such great world building in that book. Like, it, that one is prying out to be turned into a really cool, sexy movie. Like, that movie could be so lush. Like, just lean into the 70s aesthetic, make the colors pop, hire a super hot cast, and just go for it. It could be incredible. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. I could not agree more. What, oh, so well said. Beautiful. Yeah. That's one of my main missions that I preach consistently is Joyland mainstream. That's what I'm working for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with you. All right. We're winding down. I think this is the last one. Yeah. Can you tell me your top three or your top five and how did they make that spot? Yeah, I can, I can tell you both. I mean, as I've already mentioned, right, my, The Dead Zone is my number one, and it has been pretty much since the first time I read it. And and that was like the fourth King book I read. And I just I just fell in love with the story. I fell in love with Johnny and Sarah. And I really loved how that early in his career, he was already showing, I'm not just a horror guy. I can, I can do drama. I can do murder mystery. I can do romance. I can do political stuff it's it's all in there and it's all amazing and that i just find that story just hooks me all the way through it both times i've read it so that's come to be number one and then like my two to five positions they there's sort of two pairs that are sort of vying for their position depend and it sort of changes totally depending on what mood i'm in and almost what day of the week it is so my my two and three are always it and pet cemetery um, and then my four and five are different seasons in 11, 22, 63. Um, and like I say, like that ranking between two and five, they may as well all be equal second, to be honest. They're that close for each other. But if I was splitting hairs, I'd probably just have it and Pet Cemetery slightly above. I actually really like that as a five as well, because I, mean, I know I've said this about the Dead Zone, but when you take 
those five books. I think the only thing it's probably missing from that five is a sort of a really good summation of King's bibliography and, and everything he could do would be a short story collection. So like maybe you'd throw in Night Shift in there as well. But those five, like they're all so much more than spooky. They've all got in some ways, they've all got drama, they've all got romance, they've all got friendship, which we talked about earlier. They've all got action. They've all got moments of comedy as well. But I think above all, those five are all beautifully written. They're really original. And they're all just amazing stories that you can't stop reading. And like that's why you pick a book up, right? They're all such a great list. So beautiful. Yeah. When you look at them all next to each other, it's it's a huge testament. Definitely. He's, he's pretty good, isn't he? He's oh. pretty good at the writing. <laughs> yeah, not bad. Not bad. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This has been absolutely incandescent, Dave. Thank you so, so much. Can you tell the listeners out there what you're currently up to, where they can view more of your work, listen to your podcast, all that stuff? Yeah, sure. So the best place to see what I'm up to is probably my YouTube channel. So um, Dave Reads King. As I mentioned way back at the start, my goal with that was to go through each of his books and give 19 reasons to read each one. And I got there, got there towards the end of last year. So I've done all of his books. So now the logical step is to go into his movie. So as you and I sit here and record this, I've just put out my carry, 1976, 19 reasons to watch. So that'll keep me busy for the next couple of years. I am going to be throwing in book specials every month as well. So I've done my guide to Castle Rock. Um, I've got one coming up on the best King book openings rather than endings. And we've got a few other things planned as well. So each month will be like two or three movies and at least one book special. So that's the YouTube stuff. A spin-off of the YouTube side of things is the podcast that I've launched January, 2023. So podcast is called Constant Writers. And it's something I really like doing when I I'm fortunate enough to build some sort of platform is to sort of bring other people in and shout about them and plug what they do. So my goal with Constant Writers is, it's me interviewing other indie horror authors, obviously about Stephen King, but more importantly about those indie horror authors. So we, we come together and I find out more about these authors' journeys into reading, into writing, more about their work. And then they pick a King book that we talk about in a little bit more detail, but you know, much as we don't want to admit it, King's not going to be around forever. And I think there's so much talent out there in, in the genres of indie or authors that, you know, I just want to do my little bit to, to shout about them. So that's available. If you want to watch the interviews, that's available on the YouTube channel. If you want to listen to them, it's available wherever you get podcasts. And then, yeah, I've got my Instagram where I post stuff every, every now and then. And obviously the ultimate Stephen King quiz book, which is available <laughs> on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And it's 172 different 19 question quizzes that I spent two years of my life writing. So yeah, I think 3,268 questions, which handily 3268 adds up to 19. There you go. It's car. But yeah, <laughs> every, every book, every adaptation and a few other rounds thrown in there and well to, to make the numbers up. Yeah, that was just an idea that it was a good idea that just got out of hand quite quickly. Instead <laughs> being a book, I also ended up writing an original haiku for every book and every movie as well. Again, just because because I did it in a quiz, in one of the live quizzes, and people liked it, and then my brain was like, 
we could do one for every single one. So yeah, that was that was fun when it was stuff like Pet Cemetery, but then it's like, how do I write my coup about golden years or mercy or some of these other god awful movies from whatever decade? But um, <laughs> but yeah, you can find it all in the book. I did a great job of selling it on it. But no, it's <laughs> it, it's a it is it is a even though I say so myself, it is a it is a good book. If you're a king constant reader, you'll I think you'll enjoy testing yourself. You'll probably learn some some fun trivia as well. And the front cover art is amazing. So I, I teamed up with um, Blake Austin, who is Loudmouth Threads, Twitter and, and Instagram. He did me the most amazing piece of art as the as the cover for it. It's worth buying the book just for that alone, to be honest. Yeah, as soon as we're done, I'm going to ask how I could get a Dave Musson autographed copy to Kim C. So <laughs> you just you just give me your address. I'll get one out to you. Oh, my goodness. Yay. Oh, my gosh. This has been the best, Dave. Thank you so much. You have such an incredible wealth of King knowledge on all the novels, short stories, films. It's just such a joy to have been able to talk with you. So thank you for being my very first Constant Reader interview of 2023. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Take care. See ya. That's a wrap, everyone. Thank you all so very much for listening to my conversation with Mr. Dave Musson. What a guy. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, when I think about all this man has given to us in the Stephen King community, brings tear to my eye. It really does. So make sure all of you head to YouTube to like and subscribe to Dave Reads King. And then right after that, make sure you get your hands on a copy of the ultimate Stephen King quiz book, because we absolutely all need a copy of that in our lives. Yes, we do. So make sure you acquire one ASAP. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as much as I don't want to talk about this because it makes me very upset, it's truth circle time, so please gather near. (sighs) Okay, I must discuss the plague that has befallen my house. It is not a plague of the viral variety, of course, thankfully, but rather the technological kind. So once upon a last Saturday, I had my overflowing cup of piping hot Earl Grey with almond milk, as I do. And I don't know what happened, friends. Either the awkward positioning of couch pillows or my dumb cats, but let's just say very hot tea got into my laptop keyboard. And I did all the things one is supposed to do when such a disaster strikes, and alas, it is irrevocably broken, ladies and gentlemen. (sighs) awful. Despite my keyboard protector, I, the irony, I just, oh my God. So because of this disaster, I am currently in the position of replacing slash fixing it, but my podcast scheduling has been derailed. And of course it happened right when I was gathering my notes and preparing for the third installment in of Four Past Midnight, The Library Policeman. (sighs) Oh my goodness. And of course, that's one of the most incredible stories. Oh my goodness. We have so much to discuss, ladies and gentlemen. 
cheese and rice We have so much to talk about with that one. Wow. Lots going on. Lots of dark stuff in that one. And I was really looking forward to getting it off the ground sooner rather than later. And yet, here we are. This is wartime recording, everyone. This episode was definitely scraped and stapled and duct taped together as all of my necessary components for podcasting have been cast to the four winds. So because of that, the schedule might be slightly more delayed, to which I apologize so much. I'm so very sorry. I'm hoping I can get it to you in a timely manner, but just in case it might take a little bit longer than I'd like, you now know why. So just a heads up, I'm very sorry, but let's hope that the episode itself will be absolutely stellar because I've had some extra time to ruminate on this, whoa, on this really, really compelling and crazy story. Lots to discuss, lots of good things to unpack there. Hopefully, I could just get everything I need to do the episode and get it to you here shortly. So apologies if the delay is extended. That is my current plight, everyone. But if you would like to do anything to brighten my day, it would be so kind of you if you would say something nice about the show with a kind review or share this show with a constant reader in your life. If they haven't yet discovered us, it would be great if you could let them know about what we do here and share our programming with a Stephen King fan in your life. That would be so very nice. It would definitely turn this frown upside down because it's a very big frown. (laughs) So thank you all once more for being the best ever. I love you all. Take care. It's been a very cold winter for us stateside, so I hope wherever you are, you are comfortable, and be careful with your hot cups of tea, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Thank you guys once more. I hope to be in touch with you soon. Take care, and bye-bye.